Welcome, one and all, once again to the Religious Studies Project. I'm your co-host, David Robertson, and I'm here with my co-host... Christopher Carter, and today we are introducing another interview from A. David Lewis, um, which is with Kelly Baker on the Gospel of the Ku Klux Klan. But before we hand over to them, we should mention the British Association for the Study of Religions and the North American Association for the Study of Religions, who are awesome, and uh, without whom we would not be here. Now that we've got the sponsorship out of the way, it's over to A. Dave and to Kelly Baker. Take it away. Kelly, thank you for joining us today. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Uh, It's great to have you. Now, what I'd like to discuss today is a lot of the work and some additional insights you might have related to your book, Gospel According to the Klan, the KKK's Appeal to Protestant America, 1915 to 1930. I don't know that our conversation is necessarily going to be limited to 1930. We might go a bit beyond that uh, if you're willing to, but let me basically start by what got you interested in this topic, where does uh, this whole book come from for you? Uh, it's a really good question. I get this a lot, as you imagine. Someone who works on the Klan tends to have people sure. ask glances and try to figure out um, why this topic would be of interest. But uh, the particular reason that I decided to work on this is that I'm from rural Florida, okay. where um, I can remember in high school that there was actually a rally of the Klan, and then the Black Panthers came to a city nearby to protest. Um, and that's one of those memories that stood out to me throughout my undergraduate work and then in my graduate work. And one of the things that I wanted to do was to think really carefully about um, how white supremacists construct their selves mm-hmm. and how they construct their worldviews. Um, because what I realized very, very quickly in the research is that lots of people say things about white supremacists, but understanding kind of their motivations and why they're drawn to these ideologies was not so much um, the context there. So then I got more and more involved in uh, researching Klan print culture and then found that there was this really lovely story about um, the way the Klan developed that pretty much other people hadn't touched for various reasons, which is that kind makes, of a lovely that's a lovely find. That's a lovely story? It is a lovely story, yeah. A well, what I just to say is that um, a lovely story. You know, it's one of the, the things that I run into often is that when you talk about white supremacy being fascinating or lovely or appealing uh-huh. or something like this, um, people always are startled. And um, one of the things that I insist on, both in my research and with my students, is that um, we should think about how people are constructing this kind of stuff and what they're doing. And me saying it's a lovely story doesn't mean that it's a nice story or that it's a (laughs) pleasant story or any of those sorts of things. Um, But I think it is um, an indicative story of America at a certain moment. uh, And that's why that narrative appeals to me. Right. And that uh, makes sense. You having a a real world exposure to it uh, in your youth. And then I think uh, any number of uh, Americans, and perhaps this is also an international comment, uh, seeing the Klan in popular media, uh, whether that's film or television or books, uh, it does lead me to want to ask, do you have a sense of what the earliest record of the Klan in any form of popular entertainment uh, was? Uh, what Do we have an origin point? Um, I think it would be hard for me to say like an exact origin point. Um, I think the flash point is Thomas Dixon's book, The Klansman in 1905. Okay. 
so that um, so you have the reconstruction plan previously that's reacting um, to um, the sort of problems the South the South faces in reconstruction after the Civil War. Um, but Thomas Dixon's the Klansman is this mythical sort of rendering of that reconstruction plan where it retells that story. Um, and most people aren't familiar with that novel, um, but they are familiar with D.W. Griffith's version of the novel in film Birth of a Nation in 1915. Right. I was just, so about, to, I was just yeah. about to ask if it was a popular <laughs> film, if it was a popular novel, but it sounds like the book and movie did a lot better than the book. Uh, yeah, the movie has, I think, a better longevity than the book has had. And um, so the book was very controversial when it came out. People responded, not surprisingly, to this telling of um, white Klansmen saving the South, right, from dangerous, um, Af- newly enfranchised African-Americans. It's even made into a play at a certain point. But it's Griffith's birth of a nation that generates audiences and um you know, the story goes that Woodrow Wilson watches it in the White House. So it's the one that I think really showcased the Klan visually for one of those first times unless, you know, you weren't unfortunate enough to be a victim of the Klan and then you didn't need a popular portrayal in some sort of way. Um, but it becomes that kind of marker that people turn back to. And I think also that Klansmen turn back to is an important moment, which is um, worthwhile to point out as well. Well, let's look at that, um, the distinction between real life and the popular portrayal of the Klan. Are there particular tropes or cliches about the Klan that appear in the entertainment media but don't track well with real life practices of the Klan? And I guess, did it cycle around at any point? Did the Klan uh, start, uh, start consuming any of this media and have it affect their real life expression? No, I, I think it's an excellent question. Um, generally, when white supremacists, not just Klansmen, appear in any type of popular culture, there are a couple of stereotypes that immediately become apparent. They're almost always Southern. Right, yeah. They're almost always uneducated or rendered as backward. Uh, and they almost always are men. Uh, so we hardly ever see Klans women in these portrayals, even though a long-standing history of Klan's women participating in some kind of way. When I tell my students in 20th and 21st century media, generally they also are wearing um, like white tank tops, right? And <laughs> their hair is a mess and they're so clearly marked um, in some ways as a lower class as part of the attempt to. Right. And so it's really interesting that this is almost always the way that they appear and they, and they usually have really terrible Southern accents. Um, so uh, the kind of first problem with that is that for part of the long history of the Klan is that they were actually firmly middle class, um, especially in the 20s, which is the time period that um, I pay attention to. Um, most often they had some sort of degrees, so they didn't have education. Um, a lot of the Klansmen I track in my book are ministers, they're bankers, they're teachers, they're professors, um, so that they have education. Um, and the Klan tends to be much more broadly construed um, regionally than the South. The South is where it generally is understood as from, and that's not wrong. The origins are there. Um, But the order appeared in places as far flung as New Jersey and Oregon um, in the sort of grand scheme of things. So it tends to reduce the Klan to this kind of Southern stereotype. Um, And, I mean, what's what's interesting to me about this is that... um, the kind of transition that I pay attention to um, is the moments where the Klan went from being scary in popular culture to being humorous 
And I think mm. that's a really important shift. Um, so in earlier films and earlier books, the Klan was there as an object of terror. Um, in more recent moments, you know, Dave Chappelle has this wonderful skit about the black white supremacist, right? Yeah, very, very yeah. popular. My students love it. They always want to know if I've watched it. And when I think about it, um, Harold and Kumar has a scene with white supremacist um, Klansmen in which they're funny. And then very recently in um, Django Unchained, there's a scene with men who are kind of reminiscent of Klansmen, which is a humorous scene where they're making fun of the mask. And I think that's a really important transition culturally to say, wow, how did it go from them being scary to them being something that we can laugh at and have scorn and derision for? I remember there being flashback scenes in films like Malcolm X, uh, mm-hmm. other films like Mississippi Burning, which focused on it very seriously. And then, as you said, fast forward, and they've gone to either being humorous or perhaps even laughable. I think uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, the Coen Brothers movie, yeah, yeah. Uh, features the Klan in a less than menacing fashion. And, you know, even recently, um, Stephen Colbert did a bit on the Klan's new rebranding, right? The claim of rebranding where they're no longer hateful, um, where he pretty much makes fun of them for around three minutes, you know, by um, suggesting that they should realize that their new audience should be young hipsters and that instead of robes, they should wear skinny jeans, you know, and ironic T-shirts. And, I mean, it's so interesting that that is um, a possibility for an organization that's the um, pretty much the longest standing hate group in the U.S. Um, so it's a very, very important transition. Your book tracks uh, an early part of the 20th century and the, the Klan's uh, appeal, as you say, to Protestant America, the, the subtitle of your book. Do you have any sense of what was the pivot point between the Klan as fearful and the Klan as laughable or humorous? No, I think I think it's important that um, that the I mean I think one of the important transitions is that the 1960s Klan was actively involved in terrorism, right? With the bombing of the church in Birmingham, there are other examples of violence, and so that Klan was still very very scary. And I think interestingly, with the shift in the 70s and 80s, this kind of more polished. A version of um, white supremacy, I think it lost some of the kind of terror associated with robes and violence because the Klan was actually very honestly trying to conjure a non-threatening image. And I think that's where the Klan stands today, too, is that they realize this kind of message of hate and white supremacy doesn't quite work in the 21st century. And they're like, we don't hate people, right? We just love our own race. And that sort of rebranding I think makes them a lot less terrifying than they might have been in previous periods. Could you elaborate on that, speaking to uh, the specific theology of the KKK? What would separate it from far, perhaps more laudable Christian groups? No, I mean, this is an excellent question, too. And one of the things that I try to do in the book very, very avidly is to show... Um, that the Klan is religious, which is kind of a controversial claim, but to very much show that they are a part of Protestant Christianity um, in such a way that it actually makes other Protestant Christians very nervous, um, that they very much understand the kind of born-again ideology, that their tendency oftentimes runs towards the evangelical, um, that they are reinterpreting Jesus and they love Martin Luther and, um, you know, that they're thinking through... um, 
Christian theology in ways that aren't actually that different from other white Christians of their time period. And I mean, I think the thing that makes them so dramatically different is that attempt to say that racism is divinely inspired. Mm -hmm. So the kind of shift that happens that really makes them not as familiar to their neighbors is that while white supremacy was pretty common when we're talking about the culture of the 1920s, um, they take it a step further and suggest that this is divine mandate and this is how you have to understand the things that you have to interpret them racially in this way and that, um, you know, white people are blessed in this system and other people's aren't. I and I think that... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I understand that this is no longer their position, that this was amended some time ago. But um, my understanding is that the Mormon Church also had uh, a similar view on race, not necessarily a supremacy, but in their Book of Mormon, that uh, dark skin was marked by God uh, in a particular fashion. Is there... is there an analogous? Excuse me. Is there an analogous? Uh, is there a connection to be made there, or just uh, two well, separate paths? Yeah. No, I mean, I think I think it comes out of a strand of a certain 19th century um, style of Christian theology that was trying to figure out things like um, the story of Noah and his sons, right, where one son is cursed with dark skin. Um, so I think that the Mormons and the Klan sort of arriving at this um, is not so much that they're doing similar things, it's that they come out of that larger trajectory of the 19th century where you have um, slave owners and you have certain theologians that are trying to claim that slavery um, is divinely ordained, right? And they're pulling from those kinds of theological contexts to make those um, distinctions. And also note that there's a larger history um, of that kind of parsing and that attempt of racing um, biblical text that goes beyond the sort of 19th and 20th century context where uh, indigenous peoples and African slaves are being interpreted um, mm-hmm. by a variety of European Christians. And so it kind of filters down in that way. I mean, what's so kind of different about the clan in this is their kind of methods and the theatricality and um, their commitment to this as foundational, right? That part of being in the order means that you have to accept this kind of religiously tinged racism and understand it. Yeah, um, you said that the the modern clan or the contemporary clan is trying to move away uh, from an earlier image that was associated with violence and associated with terrorism. Uh, that reminds me, uh, in 2001, the television show The West Wing uh, took a special episode uh, in which, in the wake of the September 11th attacks, compared Al-Qaeda to the Klan as being roughly parallel how do you feel about that uh, analogy, especially in the context of terrorism? If it's inaccurate, is it nonetheless useful to the television audiences that we're consuming? Let me say that again. If it's inaccurate, was it still perhaps useful to television audiences in some way to use the Klan for that metaphor? I actually like this analogy a lot. And um, what I tend to do when I teach on religion and violence and religion and terrorism is that um, students often want to make claims about certain religious traditions being more inherently violent or more prone to terrorism and this sort of thing. Um, They're not doing this on their own, right? We have a public culture that is also engaged in these kinds of conversations. Uh, And one of the things that I tell them 
is that to sort of equate Islam and Al Qaeda, right, is to mm-hmm. equate Christianity with abortion clinic farmers or the K- or the KKK, mm-hmm. and it always kind of startles them, right? Um, as I imagine, it startles television audiences when they um, see this in the show that they're familiar with. Uh, and I like that kind of startled um, response because it means they then have to kind of pause and think, like, do I want a tradition that I'm involved with to be solely associated with the Klan? And generally their answer is no, of course not, right? I don't know. I don't want this association in any kind of way. Uh, and so I like it because it pairs extremists with extremists and it still pays attention to the way in which groups like Al-Qaeda and groups like the Klan are still embedded in theological systems. They're not separate from them, um, but they're employing them very, very differently than other Muslims or Christians are. And that, that distinction is really important um, because what tends to happen, not surprisingly, is that um, students have no problem being nervous about Islam and terrorism. Uh, but they are not as familiar with thinking about how Christianity could lend itself to something like terrorism either. So, particularly if so these are I, I particularly use, if these are Christian students. Particularly if these particularly, are particularly. Yeah. Yeah. And and I teach in Tennessee, so primarily okay. <laughs> <laughs> the students I have are um, Christian students, right, who get really offended um, at this kind of association of the Klan and Christianity. Um, but I think it's it's a very useful way to say, let's think about what, what our stakes are when we start making these comparisons and, and what we think about um, these kinds of traditions. Oh, very good. Um, I want to go back to a previous point you made, and I think it ties into this one, the suggesting that the Klan operate within a certain theology, and you suggested that real-life Klan members have been uh, educators, have been lawyers, have been uh, ministers. But you also said that the way that they're popularly portrayed in film and television, as is the great unwashed, the underclass, the uneducated, I have to wonder what uh, this does for the actor or the writer or the director uh, who's portraying the KKK walking a line between a, uh, a figure that the audience can relate to and understand the character's place, but also delivering a somewhat three-dimensional character. Do you have any sense how actors and writers have, uh, what difficulties, if any, they've had with portraying uh, clan members? No, I, I think it's I think it's a fantastic question, and I, I tried to find people talking about this, and um, primarily what I found was a lot of discussion around um, American History X, uh, the film yeah. uh, that showcases um, this family's involvement with neo-Nazis, right? Um, pretty famous film. I actually like to teach it a lot, too. And Edward Norton in this plays the kind of main neo-Nazi character who has a swastika tattooed on his chest, the shaved head, right? These sorts of things. And what's interesting is when he's interviewed, one of the things that he says he's committed to is that it was really uncomfortable for him, right? This was an uncomfortable role. He wasn't entirely sure what to do about it. But that the message of the film, um, where it's trying very avidly to counter white supremacy, became his way to work through it. So that it was a tough job, right? But it had a noble purpose behind it. So he could play this really awful character Mm -hmm. um, in lots of moments, but later then humanize him in that film. Um, And I I think that's really important because generally the portrayal of 
white supremacists on television and film is very, as you noted, very, very one-dimensional. Um, they're not sympathetic at all. They're very much villainous. We can't relate to them. And I think that movie does something really dangerous, which suggests actually it's a really complicated figure and look at sort of what he's going through, understand this context. Um, and that's why I find it so teachable is that it's hard for students to really hate Edward Norton's character by the end of the film um, because of all the things they've seen him sort of move through. Um, but that film also doesn't hold back any punches about the way in which hate and supremacy can become so problematic and violent um, and ultimately um, cause people to be very much harmed in some way. And thinking of Edward Norton, this was American History X 1999, in the same 12-month period as Fight Club. We didn't know Edward Norton yet as anything but a very every mild man, uh, excuse right. me, mild-mannered uh, actor. Primal Fear gave us the only sense that he had any menace to him, but never in this uh, burly neo-Nazi way. No, you would not imagine, right? Um, which is the kind of beauty, I guess, of his transformation is yeah. that um, this is a guy who generally plays these characters who kind of just move their way through slowly. But in this film, you tax on 30 pounds of muscle and in your face the entire film about this. And, and it's hard to watch, right? It's a very uncomfortable film to watch because they don't shy away from hate language. You mentioned Django Unchained uh, a few moments ago, but I'm realizing that uh, I feel like I'm seeing less of the Klan in popular yeah. television and film. Uh, any number of theories for that, obviously. Uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on possible theories, but also whether it has a presence in the imagination uh, or even real-world affairs anymore. Yeah, I think it's I mean, I think it's another excellent question because I, my sense is that the Klan numerically is on the decline. So the most recent figures from the Southern Poverty Law Center suggest maybe five to eight thousand members nationwide. And this is while white supremacist movements as a whole and hate movements as a whole are amazingly on the rise. So while right. all other groups are gaining members, the Klan is declining. And so I think um, that decline of presence, um, that decline of sort of visibility in public and civic culture, I think very much impacts the visibility in popular culture, too. So part of my... Um, kind of jockeying here. I'm a historian. I shouldn't make predictions um, in any kind of way. But, but part of my um, impression of this is that I get a sense that younger white supremacists have found other movements that they want to be a part of. Um, and that um, I think there's an author on Slate.com um, that actually called the Klan like their grandfather's white supremacist organization. Sure. Um, so this idea that, you know, it's like an older thing. It's wedded to the South. They wear these robes and hoods, right? So this is just not the kind of way that white supremacy is fashioned anymore, right? Instead, it's much more kind of clean cut or, I mean, so even neo-Nazis now are not running around <laughs> like Edward Norton in American History X, right? They've grown their hair out. They're wearing suits, right? They're, they're presenting themselves in a different kind of way um, and presenting sort of a different vision of what, what this means. All right, so part of me thinks that it's part of that kind of cultural decline. Um, but, you know, they always surprise me, too. So every moment historians imagine the Klan is finally going to disappear, 
they kind of pop back up unexpectedly. Um, so I, I, so I'm kind of hesitant to say um, that this is going to decline and sort of die out in some sort of way, but definitely the representations of them have. Um, I, I find them a lot less frequent and find neo-Nazis and Aryan nations much more popular mm-hmm. uh, um, in did, film or law and order or something like this. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I have to wonder if it's an effect of globalization or if it's an effect, a post-September 11th world with a focus on global terror, uh, or if, yeah. as you said, uh, this was your grandfather's hate organization, not your grandfather's hate organization. Yes, no, uh, not mine. But... <laughs> not yours. Uh, but that one that had uh, practices that belong to uh, not just a viewpoint, but practices that belong to uh, a foregone uh, a foregone time. Yeah, and I think I think it's just it's a harder I think it's a harder sell in an age um, that people want to laud as post-racial and multicultural. I think that's the other, the other kind of component of that too. And I think more and more, as you know, the focus on global terror means that we're turning away from things like domestic terror um, and that kind of representation. And so, I, I mean, I think it's very, very intriguing that the Klan is still so wed to the hood and robe, which has so much baggage. I mean, it's, it's, you know, if you were really going to rebrand, you imagine one way to do this would be to toss aside that costume. Um, But that's not what's happening. Um, Like Stephen Colbert said. Like Stephen Colbert said, they are not changing their fashion um, to represent something differently. I find it striking that even domestic terror now, and here I'm thinking about the Boston Marathon attacks, are almost immediately linked to international terror. I mean, before right. there's any facts uh, or evidence to that on the scene, that that's the first thought, that terror comes from without, whereas in the clan's, shall we say, heyday, uh, international terror was uh, an alien concept. Right. I mean, and, and the sort of long history of domestic terror that we also have to confront in some kind of way, too. I, it's so interesting when you um, read government reports on sort of rises in domestic terror and how little attention those kinds of things get as newsworthy items versus this desire to show this kind of internationalization of terror and threats and um, and so it, I mean, it, it tells you something very much about how September 11th very much informs public culture's interpretations of any kind of action like this. It must come from without. It couldn't possibly yeah. come from within. Right. Well, uh, you are, as you noted, a historian of American religions, and you've demonstrated that uh, wonderfully here. I'm curious what sort of popular culture you personally consume. Where do you focus your interests when it comes to the intersection of religion and popular culture? Um, well, currently I consume a whole bunch of zombie media, but that's because I'm writing on zombies now. Um, so I'm not <laughs> First sure the clan, now zombies. Oh, excellent. That's okay. right. I know. Yeah. No, it's the, it's the kind of fun, um, wild transitions that scholars take, right, where you never imagine um, how research interests will turn into case studies. Um, but so currently I am in the thick of um, zombies, so The Walking Dead, um, Warm Bodies, a whole bunch of really terrible zombie fiction. Um, um, uh, comic books, graphic novels, these sorts of things, uh, which is kind of torturous to me because I'm not actually a fan of the genre, but it's a uh, research interest. Um, 
so zombies all the time is uh, what it feels like. Um, when I'm when I'm doing this for my own kind of personal interest, I'm, I'm very very fascinated um, by post-apocalyptic media too. So people that are recreating the world after apocalypticism, and so that's where my interest um, tend to go personally. But it's still kind of those research interests that um, that collide, right? So what happens when people recreate the world, and what images do they make, and is it religious or is it not? Um, and I think that's what's so interesting about contemporary post-apocalyptic fiction and television, which is everywhere, right? You can't avoid it um, in some kind of way, is to see what kind of worlds they conjure and um, whether religion has any space in them or not, um, I think is a really intriguing thing about the current moment, right? How it appears, if it doesn't appear, um, what people are thinking about, that kind of stuff. I'm reminded when you mentioned Walking Dead uh, that the Dixon brothers on Walking Dead are white, <laughs> are white yeah. supremacists. So maybe they you have are. a natural bridge right there. Yeah, no, I do. It's one of those things where um, when I was starting the first season with my um, with my partner who sits through a lot of this with me, um, one of the things that he immediately said is he's like, oh, you're going to love this. They already have white <laughs> supremacists, right? Like they're already here. And, um, and so I haven't been disappointed, you know, um, but it, I mean, it's kind of this, this fascinating thing that um, those two became super popular among fans. Um, and fans who aren't talking about their white supremacy, but are talking about other things with them. And I'm like, wait, <laughs> can't we like talk about the white supremacy that's a component of this too? Um, so it, it is it is funny when periodically they, they combine um, and I find myself like, wow, who would have guessed that um, in any media I consume, we're going to find hate groups <laughs> well, one way or another. Perhaps we'll leave the hate groups behind, or or maybe we'll take them with us when we uh, have you back at some point to discuss uh, zombies and post-apocalyptic. Uh, excuse me, when we have you back to discuss zombies and post-apocalypticism, uh, perhaps hating zombies is the new uh, meta hate, the new meta <laughs> differentiation between us and them. I don't. I'd be interested to oh. take on that sometime. Yeah, I, I will. I will have to think about it and and tell you that I hope that is not the case. <laughs> okay. um, but that sounds wonderful. Kelly, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, I enjoyed this time, and I'll be sure to link uh, listeners through the website to your book and other works. Great, thank you so much. Thank you. Wonderful to have another interview there in our sort of religion and popular culture series brought to you by A. David Lewis. Um, and great to have Kelly Baker involved. Um, she's a scholar who I've seen all over Twitter, but I uh, have not heard until that interview. So it was really good um, to finally hear her. Um, we've got another kind of popular culture-ish interview coming up next week that uh, my co-host David Robertson recorded. Indeed, yes. Uh, this was uh, just... Tail end of last year? Yeah, yeah so. tail end of last year uh, with um, Tom Wagner, who's actually an ethnomusicologist here at the University of Edinburgh. Um, now, our friend Beth Singler met him at a conference somewhere uh, where he was talking about his work on Scientology um, and suggested he'd be a good interviewee. Um, and so I got in contact with him and turns out that he's not only a very interesting interviewee, but a very nice chap as well. And we had a, a good long conversation, um, a little bit about his his new work on Scientology, but mostly focusing on his work on Christian Pentecostalist mm -hmm. megachurches in the US and the way that they use music um, as part of 
um, brand creation of yeah. uh, creating a brand identity and a commercial identity which keeps them very much in the public eye but we go back into the history of of evangelical churches using these kind of techniques um, it's it's very interesting and actually it ties in really well with a dave's um kind of uh, popular culture um series so um, i'm glad to be bringing you that next week Wonderful. And we've got one more um, interview from A. Dave um, coming up in the next couple of weeks as well. So I hope you will tune in for that. As ever, don't forget about our Amazon links. Um, so if you're, you're buying items of popular culture, um, you might be doing it through Amazon. If you are on .com.co.uk or .ca, uh, we benefit greatly from you using those links. Don't forget about our Facebook, our Twitter our Google+, Plus, our iTunes, and our YouTube. Especially the YouTube's not getting a lot of traction yet. I don't know why. But we're hoping to get a lot more video content on there in the near future. And also, as part of an ongoing project, I've been um, remastering some of our earlier podcasts, which were recorded on not the flash equipment that we have nowadays, but on old-fashioned analog you know, wax cylinders and things. <laughs> um, so I've been... Um, remastering those slowly at the end of every month I do a batch of those and because of the system that I use to remaster them they get added to YouTube automatically so there's going to be um, a lot of our back catalogue appearing at regular intervals and um, probably not long after this interview goes out there's going to be another batch online so watch out for them but for now uh, from Edinburgh to you thanks for listening <laughs>